Welcome to the Crosswalk Church Podcast, Phoenix, Arizona. Let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. We're diving into a new series this morning. I'm really excited about this series called Decisive. These last chapters of the, of the book of Matthew talk about the last week of Jesus' life, the last few days. In fact, the things that uh, we're looking at this morning, really, uh, we believe that they happen on the Tuesday, just two days prior to, uh, to Jesus' crucifixion. And so these are decisive moments in Jesus' life. We're actually going to go through an entire, almost an entire chapter of the book of Matthew, chapter 26, which is why you'll see that I've, I've organized it a little bit differently this morning. I haven't put the entire text that we're studying up front because I wanted to break it up into various pieces. Man, can you imagine that they must be having some really decisive conversations right now in Japan? Wow, I, I just, I have been glued to the, the news reports of what's going on over there for the past, past several days since I first heard about this on Friday, and it is incredible. An 8.9 on the Richter scale earthquake. Some reporters were saying yesterday that the whole island of Japan literally moved eight feet. That the whole island just shifted eight feet. They were saying that with this earthquake, the, the earth is actually spinning slightly more, more quickly than it was. The, the rotations are going just a, a millisecond faster, and that the earth's axis may have shifted by as much as 10 centimeters from this earthquake. Do you ever wonder what's going to happen? Man, it just really tells you that there are a lot of interesting things that we need to be looking at in our world today and talking about, having decisive conversations about those things. As bad as this horrible disaster is, and I want to take a moment as we enter into this message today, to pray about it, but as bad as it is, it turns out that there were some decisive conversations that happened prior to the disaster that have actually helped to make it less serious than it could have been. And I'll come back to those in just a moment, but right now, I'd like us to have a decisive conversation with God in prayer and, uh, and to take the people of Japan uh, to, to God in prayer. Will you join with me in that? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, you are the King of Kings, the one who rules not just planet Earth, but our entire universe and all its galaxies. Lord, you know all things. You know even the number of hairs on each head in this room and on planet Earth. And we realize, Lord, from events like this event in Japan that we are certainly not in control. You are. And that's why we come before you this morning. We ask you to show mercy and grace to the people of the, of the great nation of Japan during this time of their tremendous need. Help, uh, help those who, who want to assist them in this to arrive quickly, to, to have solutions that, that, that work well. And Lord, not just with the earthquake, but with the, the tsunami and now the potential nuclear meltdown, Lord, we just, we need your supernatural intervention, and we ask for it boldly in the name of Jesus. Lord, we also ask that this become an opportunity to share the cross of Christ with more people, that, 
that somehow out of all this disaster, this triple disaster, that your name would be raised up and glorified and that more people would come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Lord, we know that you are a gracious and merciful God, and that's why we pray to you, and we we simply come to you as your sons and daughters, asking for that grace and mercy now to be shown to the people of Japan, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. They're saying that Japan is the country that is the most earthquake-prepared country on the face of the earth. That literally going all the way back uh, to the 80s, that decisive congrega- conversations were held about how to re- restructure building codes, put Teflon in the foundations, literally put springs in the buildings. Man, I have some images fixed in my mind from the past couple of days. I'll bet you do too. One of those images is, is buildings literally swaying. And, and as the reporter uh, reports this, he says this is actually a good thing because it means that they've, they've addressed this problem in, in their building codes and in the, the engineering and the construction of the, the high-rise buildings to allow that to happen so that those buildings don't crumble and there be greater loss of life. The thought that even has gone into what to do in, in, uh, in, in the potential problem of a nuclear meltdown. There were, they were saying this morning still that maybe some of that is going to, to mitigate some of this problem. Decisive conversations can be so important in our lives. I actually put um, a question out on the table project this week asking people, what are some decisive conversations that you've had in your life? And I got, I got some amazing answers back from people. Conversations about uh, moving from one side of the country to the other and, and how critical that conversation was for spouses and children to have. One conversation uh, about an adoption that uh, a mom and dad were talking about and, and how that conversation was so important to that adoption happening later on. And one person actually sharing how they had had a decisive conversation with a friend of theirs that led to them getting into God's word every day that they hadn't been doing that. And they had this conversation with a friend and, and he told them of the value of that and how that's helped his faith strengthen and grow. Jesus is in the last few days of his walking with the disciples, of his sojourn on earth. And every conversation that takes place during that week is a critical conversation to prepare his disciples and the other people around him for what's about to come when Jesus goes to the cross. And as we kick off this this new series, Decisive, we want to start by talking about what were those preparations that Jesus uh, found so necessary, so important, so critical to make. Because I, I really believe this, and I'll, I'll bet if you think of circumstances in your life, one of the most damaging things that can happen, whether it's an 8.9 magnitude earthquake or the things that go on in our lives, it, it, it's damaging when we lack clarity in those situations, isn't it? I mean, have you ever gone into things like this? Um, imagine if the, if the Japanese had not taken the time to clarify the engineering on these buildings. How many more lives would have been lost? 
And, and not only is clarity important, but clarity is particularly important when it comes to the critical moves in our lives. When we're going to move halfway across the country, when we're going to consider adopting a child, when we're thinking about how do, I, how do I feed and grow my faith, those are critical things. And so here's what I want you to write in the notes. One of the most damaging situations in life can be lack of clarity about where I'm at, where I'm going, what's my purpose, where am I going to end up? All these things need to be talked about. And even more damaging is lack of clarity about what is critical. As we look at these conversations in Matthew chapter 26, we're going to see Jesus just address this head on. He's going to say, look, Guys, you have to be absolutely clear about a couple of things here. And as he addresses these things with the disciples, he also addresses them with us. And in essence, says to us, modern day Christ followers, here are some things that you need to be absolutely clear about. And in fact, it's going to all boil down to one critical, critical thing that we have to be absolutely clear about. So we're going to go through Matthew chapter 26. As I said, I've kind of broken it up and talk about the decisive conversations that Jesus had in his final days and what they accomplished for his disciples, what they accomplished still for us today. You know, when major scale disasters happen of the kind that we've witnessed this week, or even if it's just small things, I'll I'll bet... Some of you on the way to church this morning noticed that uh, 51st Avenue and Baseline is taped off and blocked. At least it was earlier this morning. And that's because apparently there was a huge accident, perhaps loss of life there. I know uh, that one person reported to me that there's um, a, a police cruiser turned over up on its roof in that accident. So while all of this stuff is going on, Life goes on here too, doesn't it? Life is still going on in your personal life. And you have to deal with not just this big ticket stuff that's going on in the world, but also the stuff that's still going on in in your own life. And sometimes when somebody comes to you in all of that and says, look, you just have to hone in on Jesus. You have to move all that other stuff aside and, 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 and get to the cross and the grace of God in Christ and to the forgiveness and mercy and love that, that God has for you in his son. Sometimes that sounds a little crazy to us. As if the cross is going to help people that are flooded out of their homes, is going to help people whose homes have been flattened like earthquakes, is going to help whoever was injured at 51st Avenue at Baseline. The cross is going to help me deal with all the big, medium-sized, and small problems in my life. How does that work? And it sounds a little bit, at times, like foolishness to us. In fact... Even the Apostle Paul admits that especially for those who don't believe the message of the cross sounds like foolishness. Take a look at that passage I put 
in your crosswalk notes from 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's not foolishness. It's the power of God. Now what does that mean? It's the power of God. Take a look at the next passage I I put down there. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Will you circle all these things in that passage? These are the first couple verses in Matthew 26. And Jesus has just finished talking about some really important things. Do you know what he's been talking about in Matthew 24 and 25? If you have your Bibles with you, you might open up there and just thumb through the, 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 the headlines in those two chapters. He's talking about the end of the world. Do you know what one of the things that Jesus says in Matthew 24 and 25 is? He basically tells us this world that you live in is dying. You know that you're dying. We're all dying. We're all one day going to end up in a box or in a cremation urn. 100% of people die. Do you also realize, as Jesus predicts in Matthew 24 and 25, this whole world is dying? And he says, you're going to see signs of this in the last days. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. And he says... There are going to be signs in the sun and the moon and stars, and there will be earthquakes. Because you're living on a dying world, and the reason you're living on a dying world is because sin has not just impacted and infected you as a person. Romans 8 tells us it has infected and impacted God's entire creation. And so Jesus spends these two chapters basically saying two the apostles, to the disciples, he says, look, you have to be ready. In the last days, there's going to be a lot of disastrous stuff that happens because the world you live on is dying. And then what does he do? What some of us might consider to be kind of dumb and foolish, here in verse 1 and 2, after he'd finished saying all that, he says, but here's the most important thing, the most critical thing. I'm going to the cross. And in fact, it's interesting to look not only backward in Matthew, but also forward. Because if if you look on to chapter 27, you find the biggest earthquake that has ever occurred in the history of planet Earth. Did you know that? That in Matthew chapter 27, the biggest earthquake that has ever happened in the history of the world is told about. Let me read to you. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he's up on the cross. When he had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. He dies. Verse 51, chapter 27 says, At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. 
The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Imagine an earthquake that doesn't cost life, but an earthquake that gives life back. They came out of the tombs. An earthquake in which it says that the curtain in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. And what that represents is that the separation between God's people and the holy place, the holy God and his presence is no longer there. That curtain that used to serve as a, as a division and a dividing wall between us and God is gone. Why? Because there at the cross, Jesus paid for all of our sins. Jesus offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for your sins and mine, and they're all completely paid for. You are ransomed from sin, from death, from the power of the devil, and you are no longer over here separated from God, and God's over here, the holy God, not able to stand to be near you because you're so sinful. Jesus' death at the cross and that earthquake pulls us all back together with God and knots us together with him again. It reconciles us. Matthew goes on to say that when the centurion... And those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened. They were terrified and they exclaimed, and this is important. Surely he was the son of God. And that's why I say this was the biggest earthquake ever in the history of the world. Because in this earthquake was the demonstration that Jesus Christ who gave his life on the cross was the son of God. God's blood was shed for you and me to pay off our sins. So do you see why in the midst of all this stuff coming, Jesus is going to die. He's just spent two chapters of the Bible telling them, look, this world is dying. Here's here's what's going to happen as you see the end approach. He says, but here's what's truly critical. And I want you to be absolutely clear about this. I'm going to the cross and there is nothing more important than what happens at the cross. So here's the first thing I want you to to write in. Jesus' decisive conversations in his final days first marked a clear path to the cross. As foolish as it might sometimes seem to us to talk so much about the cross with all this stuff going on, that's exactly what Jesus did. He marked a clear path to the cross. Now, if it's sometimes surprising to us as Christ followers, sometimes feels a little dumb and foolish, how much more? And Paul says that it's going to be foolishness to those who are perishing. We have to understand that those who don't know Jesus as their Savior or their Lord are going to find this all the more weird, outlandish, and shocking that in times of major disasters, we want to point people to the cross. But the reason they find it outlandish and shocking is because they're focused on problems, not the problem. They're focused on symptoms, not the disease. 
And that's why it's so important for us to be able to differentiate between those two. Jesus says in those chapters 24 and 25, the reason all of this is happening, all of these problems are occurring, is because of the one big problem. That God's creation, starting with Adam and Eve, rebelled against God in sin. That sin is the the big capital P-R-O-B-L-E-M problem that's behind all the problems. And the more we can address the problem of sin in our lives, the more that we can share the good news of how Jesus has addressed the problem of sin in the whole entire world's life and get people to know Jesus the more we're really focusing on clarity about the critical issue. Now, I remember when I was a new believer and I, and I understood this for the first time and I thought, man, I've just got to... I went, I went back to Sunny Slope High School where I went to high school and I started sharing this with friends and teachers and then started to realize, oh, people are not finding this so interesting. People are not really getting as psyched up about it as I am. In fact, some of them are kind of going, what, what, what happened to Jeff? When did he get religion? And some of my old friends and people I talked to, after a while I found they, they weren't so interested in talking to me anymore. Maybe you've had that same experience of knowing Christ as your Lord and Savior and wanting to share the cross with people and realizing, man, This not only makes people shy away from me, some people it makes downright angry. And they oppose it. To the very tips of their toes, they oppose it. Notice what it says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18. For as I have often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies. Of the cross of Christ. It's not just that people are going to be surprised or taken off guard or maybe even shocked by it. It goes beyond that. God tells us we're going to meet opposition. And I think when I was a new believer, maybe when some of you were new believers, you started to think along these lines that, hey, now that I'm living with God in my life, the Holy Spirit's at work. He's changing things up. Things are just going to be so positive and wonderful because now God is on my side and I'm on God's side and blessing must surely follow. And I forgot that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. In fact, I forgot that God's happy that I'm now following him. But someone else is ticked off, a guy named Satan. And talk about enemies of the cross of Christ. When you make the devil mad, you can guarantee that he is going to try to do some things to get you back over to his side. And he's going to use people and circumstances and things to try to shake you in your faith. Because he doesn't want you over there trusting in, in God, trusting in Christ, clinging to the cross. That's the last thing he wants. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ and no one more than Satan. And you've made an enemy of Satan by becoming a follower of Christ. And Jesus encountered this too. Look at what it 
says in Matthew 26, then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him, but not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. You see, these guys thought they were having a decisive conversation that their plot would work if they were just smart enough and in control enough and could keep Jesus' arrest away from the feast, but they didn't realize they weren't truly in control. That God always was and always is in control. And in fact, you know when Jesus' arrest and crucifixion happened? Right smack dab in the middle of the feast. And what a beautiful thing it was that it happened then because it happened on the day that was symbolic of the Jews' release from captivity in Egypt. That's what Passover is and their freedom from slavery. And now here comes Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world and his death means our release from captivity and from slavery to Satan, sin, and death. And not only is there the beauty of that picture, but there's the beauty of the fact that there were thousands and thousands of people gathered in Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. People from all over the empire to celebrate this major festival who would all go home hearing about this man, this God-man, Jesus Christ, who had been crucified Because God is always in control. He can turn the stones and the rocks that want to be built up into obstacles in his path. He turns all those into stepping stones. He turns his enemies into aids. And that's what I want you to write here is when we see this conversation between the the chief priests and the elders who think they're in control, who think they can oppose all that Christ has done, we see that in reality what happens is they they get turned into Jesus' helpers. And they get turned into Jesus' helpers to do the one thing that is above all other things, to ensure that Jesus is in fact sacrificed at the cross for the sins of the world, how important that is. Have you ever heard the old saying, good is the enemy of the best? You know what that means? Good is the enemy of the best. What it means is there are a lot of good things that we we can all do. But if we don't understand what's really critical, think, think about the Japan issue, for example. I mean, there, there are so many things that they could be paying attention to in preparation for an earthquake or a tsunami. But if they don't pay attention to critical things like how buildings are engineered or how nuclear plants are, are to be engineered and built, and then how to have backup plans upon backup plans in case something happens. If they don't really pay attention to what's the most important thing, then all the other good things they can do could become the enemy of the best thing they can do. Notice what Paul says. For as I have often told you before and now say again, even with 
uh, I'm sorry, down one. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You know what Paul is saying there? There's a lot of things that we could talk about as Christ followers. There's a lot of things that we can do. But if there's one most important thing, one thing that I want to do best above all else, it's talk about the cross. The disciples struggled with this a little bit, and we see that in this story. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. What's the good thing that the disciples wanted to do? And it truly is a good thing. They, they purportedly wanted to help the poor. And even the Bible tells us to do that, to have a heart for and an eye out for people who are struggling and hurting. It's something that we do as a church all the time to reflect the love of Christ is help those who are downtrodden. Of course, that's what Christ followers are about. And there are many good things we can do in that vein. But... What if a church gets to the point where they're so engaged with helping the poor, with doing those good things of making sure that the, the downtrodden and the people who've been treated unjustly, those who are hurting are being taken care of, and all of a sudden the message of the cross gets lost? What then? Jesus says, be careful about that. Do you know who pours? This alabaster jar of perfume on Jesus? Her name is Mary. And Mary has a sister named Martha. And Jesus has already interacted with Mary and Martha previously. If you know the story, Jesus has visited their home. And Martha is busy, busy, busy scurrying around doing what? Serving. Is serving good? Yes, it's wonderful to serve. But Jesus says, Martha, you're worried and concerned about many things. And they're good things, Martha. But don't forget that good can become the enemy of the best. Your sister Mary, she's sitting here just listening to me teach. And Martha, Mary has chosen what is better. Don't let the good become the enemy of the best. As we serve, as we help, as we take care of the downtrodden and the hurting, remember the cross is what's so critically important. And it's interesting because this woman, Mary, who was sitting at the feet of Jesus, she's the one person in all these decisive conversation that gets what this week is really all about. Why does she pour that perfume on Jesus? Why does she pour that expensive? You realize that perfume had the value of a year's wages? Can you imagine taking 
out of your savings, an entire year's wages, buying a little bottle of perfume and pouring it out in about 10 minutes? Why does Jesus say she does that? It's critically important. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my, on my body, and underline this next phrase, she did it to prepare me for burial. She knows what the most important thing is that's coming up, the cross, my crucifixion. And I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus affirms the cross over all other priorities. The cross and the message of the cross is what is always first, foremost, what is best. And here's why. As you write down number three, why is it that we must affirm and reaffirm the cross as the vital, critical, most important message that we have to hear and that we have to get out into our world, even, even in a day of major disasters? Why is it that Jesus says, after two chapters of this world is coming to an end and it's going to be disastrous, and then he says, but don't forget the cross. Why does he do that? I'll tell you why. It's because overcoming our doubt about forgiveness and grace is such not only an important task, but a difficult task. All the while that that God is trying to communicate to us his forgiveness and his love and how big and how inclusive his grace is in our own hearts, we're struggling In our own minds, we're going back to those big sins that we committed. Or we're thinking about those sins that we keep repeating, and even though we're struggling against them, we we do them, and then we repent of them, and then we do them, and then we repent of them, and there's just this big spiritual battle going on back and forth in our heart, and we're going, can God really forgive that? Those things that I do, and then I repent of, and then I go back and do again? And meanwhile, as I said on Wednesday night, Satan is there just yapping in your ear. You know what his name means? The accuser. And he's constantly feeding you lies. How arrogant, he'll say to you, that you would believe that God would forgive that that you did? Really? You think you can just do that and then ask for forgiveness and God's just going to freely forgive you? And so we're feeding ourselves doubt. Satan is feeding us lies and deceit. And if we don't stay focused on the cross, guess what happens? Before you know it, that big string of baggage is dragging behind every one of us. Guilt, shame, pain. We're thinking about all the hurt and the damage that we've done to others. We're thinking about all the hurt and the damage we've done to ourselves. And it becomes tougher and tougher and tougher to cut that rope and let it go. 
unless we keep hearing the message of the cross. Look at what it says in John 1.16. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. What's he saying there? He's saying that God's grace and mercy and forgiveness is like, it's, it's like packages on a conveyor belt. You come to him and you say, God, will you forgive me? And you look at the cross and you take that big package of his undeserved love and forgiveness off of there and you hold it. And then, of course, after a little while, you sin some more and you, and you go, well, is there any more grace for me? John 1 says, yes, there is. There definitely is. There is always grace in place of grace already given. There's more grace coming on the conveyor belt from God in Christ. That's what the cross means. And again and again in the Bible, we find the Bible telling us, look, there are huge sinners that Jesus, that God kept reaching for. Even Judas himself, look at this next passage. One of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they handed, they counted out for him 30 silver coins, much less than that bottle of perfume was valued at, by the way. 30 silver coins was the common value of a slave in Jesus' day. Judas was going to sell Jesus for that price. Judas, whom Jesus had trusted, trusted so much he'd made him treasure, had him follow him day after day after day, and now this man is going to betray him. And what do we see Jesus do? Cut him off? He keeps trying to reach him. He keeps trying to crack open his heart and say, see my mercy, see my love, Judas. It's incredible the amount of God's grace and God's love. And in these decisive conversations is uncovered the magnitude of Jesus' love for you and for me. And here's the final, the final thing that the, these decisive conversations show us so quickly. The Bible teaches us that God's sacrifice, that Christ's death on the cross is for all people, the entire world. There's no one excluded from the forgiveness that Christ won for us at the cross. The only thing that can prevent you or me from benefiting from that forgiveness is this one thing, to not receive it. And do you know why you might not receive this grace of Christ, this forgiveness that God has for you in his son, won for you at the cross? It comes down to one word, deceit that your heart is so cluttered with lies, with falsehoods, with, with mistaken beliefs about God, about who you are, why you're here, whatever it might be, things that you've collected over the years, and what Jesus wants to do is declutter your heart. Notice what Jeremiah says. 
The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? We say, trust your heart. We tell one another, if you follow your heart, you can't go wrong. But the Bible says, watch out when you listen to your heart. Because inside your heart can live a lot of lies and deceit. So many that it can be literally beyond cure, except for one thing. The blood of Jesus. As Jonathan said earlier, the blood of Jesus Christ shed at the cross is what can cleanse your heart and unclutter it from all the lies and the deceit and fill it instead with the truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and his death. Look at what it says. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. They're going to go up into this upper room. They're going to enjoy the Passover meal together. But something critical happens at that Passover meal. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. One last time, Jesus tries to crack open Judas' hard heart, Judas' selfish, greedy heart. One last time, Jesus tries to crack in there. But Judas' heart is too filled with deceit. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, Yes, it is you, Judas. If we are going to hold on to, benefit from, grasp all that Jesus has done from the cross, the deceit must fall from our hearts. The Holy Spirit must come in through the power of the gospel and replace lies with truth. And so I ask you this morning, are you prepared to have your heart cracked open by Jesus? Because he's the only one that can do it. Jeremiah says, who can cure our hearts? And the answer, the only answer is Jesus at the cross by shedding his blood Only that can cleanse our hearts and put truth instead of lies inside there. Your fifth and final point is that these decisive conversation reveals what lies inside deceitful hearts. There is nothing more critical than the cross, in other words. And the message that I want you to go home with today is in this world... Of 8.9 earthquakes in this world of horrible accidents happening just down the street, in this world of all the stuff you're dealing with in life, and especially in this world of sin, the big capital P problem, turn your eyes to the cross. 
clarity. To have lack of clarity about the importance of the cross is truly deadly. And that's why we've even called this church Crosswalk. Because there is one thing we want you to be absolutely clear about. That here, you will hear the gospel message that will lead you to walk in the comforting and yes, sometimes challenging shadow of the cross of Christ. And during these next days leading up to Easter, in this season of Lent, here's what I want you to say to yourself, and you can write it down. I will prepare my heart for God by seeking clarity about what is truly critical in my life, the cross of Christ as the power of God. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to shed his blood for us at the cross. And Lord, help us to see it not as foolishness, but as true power. Lord, help us to see the power that it has to to cause us to replace deceit-filled hearts with truth-filled hearts, to see the power that it has to, to take away our sins and guilt and shame and replace that with forgiveness and love and to know that we are your dearly loved children. Lord, help us to see the power that is in your cross to, to help others and love others and do truly significant things with our lives. Lord, as we enter this season of Lent, help us to be decisive as you were decisive. Send your spirit into our dead hearts, into our cold hearts, and fill them with the trust to receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior and to turn our eyes constantly to his cross. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Crosswalk Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at crosswalkphoenix.com.